On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Cameron Adams. And we eventually ended up launching it internally. It was a bit of a political fight because people were like, why has this been hidden for so long? Um, So there was a lot of internal turmoil and we eventually released it at Google I.O. to the public and got an amazing reception to the demo uh, and had this massive waiting list of people. So uh, Cameron, you have built a pretty incredible company, first venture-backed billion-dollar tech firm in in Australia, 10 million users, accomplished all these things. Um, And one of the thoughts I had was, you know, your experience working at Google, uh, wondering how that influenced you as you went about building your own tech firm. Yeah, it was highly influential in a number of different ways. So it kind of played into my philosophy as well as just general, you know, journey and ability to build a company. So I worked for Google from 2007 till about 2011. Um, And I actually worked on this special project there called Google Wave. Um, I'd actually applied to Google twice before as an engineer and just wasn't good enough to get in, failed, failed miserably. Uh, but I managed to get in through the back door because one day they were looking for a contract designer, which required no interviews, and a friend referred me and they had a quick look at my portfolio and they're like, cool, come in. Um, so I went in that first day and walked into reception. I'm like, hey, I'm here to see Lars, who's one of the... Um, founders of Google Maps. And they took me through to this room that was completely blacked out. So it was a meeting room that they'd uh, kind of squatted in and they'd blacked out all the windows. And I remember opening the door and this wave of sweat just hit me because three guys had been in this room for about, you know, three weeks straight, just coding furiously, trying to get this prototype going. Um, And they introduced me to Lars and, and he told me about the idea that they're working on and it was Google Wave, which is kind of their idea of a next wave communication tool, which would overtake instant messaging and email and just take collaboration into the future. Uh, and there's a really exciting vision and they'd, they'd got a really impressive tech demo up um, and they needed a designer to kind of get into the shape and turn it into a nice experience. So I joined on for six months on a contract role. And at the end of that, they took that entire prototype and pitched it to Larry, Sergey, and Eric. Um, and off the back of that prototype, they got uh, you know, millions of dollars in funding to set up a new team at Google and essentially took over the Google Australia office here in Sydney. So they had about, uh, at the start, they had about 30 engineers, which was about half the workforce here in Sydney. Um, and they started building a product. Uh, and very fortunately, Eric, who was CEO at the time, he was like, 
oh, who designed that? You should hire him. So that's how I got a full-time job at Google. <laughs> that's, um, that's, a, that's a pretty good endorsement, right, from Eric? Yeah, it's pretty good. I might, I might put that on my CV. Um, but I then worked with the team for about four years. We grew from 30 engineers to about 50, 55 engineers. Um, and it was, it was a kind of a strange project. It was uh, Google's attempt at having a startup inside Google. Um, so it was quite secretive, which was not the norm for projects in Google at the time. So Google famously internally is very transparent. Like anyone can learn any information about any project and, and dive into it. But with Google Wave, uh, everything was hidden. Even people in the Sydney office didn't quite know what we were working on if they weren't on the team. Uh, and, and we're in that stealth mode for about three years, building this product out, refining experience, doing incredible things with browser technology that no one had ever done before. Um, and we eventually ended up launching it internally. It was a bit of a political fight because people were like, why has this been hidden for so long? Um, so there was a lot of internal turmoil and we eventually released it at Google I.O. to the public and got an amazing reception to the demo. Uh, and had this massive waiting list of people uh, waiting to get on the product. I think it was about 3 million people long. Uh, and it took us a while to get out. And during that time, people were talking about what the product actually did, what they thought it did. And when we, when we eventually launched the product, it couldn't quite meet their expectations. So we had like 3 million people come on with signups. Uh, we ended up only having about three or 400,000 active users after six months. Uh, at the time, there was a lot happening in Google as well. Google Plus was going. And after about a year of a release, Google Wave eventually got canned and a bunch of the engineers got put onto Google Plus and a bunch of other, um, bunch of other uh, projects. But out of that, I think roughly half the Google Wave team ended up leaving Google just because uh, we were a bit disenchanted with the way that we'd been treated. And I think also the people that were attracted to a startup project like that were quite entrepreneurial in nature and quite, you know, fairly big risk takers. So they were really interested in setting up their own companies, uh, going to emerging startups. Um, and I myself left after about six months and formed another communication startup with two other people from the Wave team. We worked on that for about a year, went through a big roller coaster of trying to get funding and almost closing a deal, but not quite closing it. And eventually came home uh, with, with no funds. We hadn't been working, like hadn't been getting a wage for a year and just had to reassess what we were doing. Uh, and very fortunately, Lars, my old boss from Google, took that moment to introduce me to Mel and Cliff, who at that time were working on their school yearbooks business and just thinking about how to get Canva off the ground and, and you know, how to get funding, how to build a team, how to build the product. Um, and I walked into their office because uh, Lars had wanted me to, to give them some advice on what could be done in HTML5 uh, for their yearbook business because it was built on Flash at the time. So I walked in and uh, I remember Mel sitting at the desk and she was like, oh, are you here for the uh, PHP developer role? And I'm like, what? I'm not going to work for you. I'm here to tell you how to run your company. Um, <laughs> so... So we sat down, I talked them through the technology and that's when she first told me the idea for Canva and, and democratizing design. And, you know, for all those reasons I explained earlier, it really struck home with me. Um, but I was still running my own startup, so, so I kind of went back to my own life. But the idea for Canva kept ticking over in my head and after a couple of months I went back to 
So Mel was like, how are you going with this thing? And she's like, oh, we still haven't got it off the ground. Um, you know, we could really use your help. And that's, that's when I joined together with them. And shortly after that, we managed to get funding and, and start building a team. That's a riot. So when you think about that Google experience, where do you feel like it helped you as you built Canva to the, you know, 70 million, <laughs> 70 million designs a day getting built? I mean, I think it, it helped me personally be confident in my skills and also understand this kind of emerging area of, of product design and development. Um, you'd had a few apps on the web that had been built, such as Gmail and, and Maps to some extent, but the true nature of web apps and what you could do on the web was still being realized. And I think being at Google really accelerated my understanding of that and uh, my own skills in, in designing and developing a product. So I think that was really valuable. Uh, seeing the internals of Google as well, the way the company ran, uh, and also how startups could run, uh, even though you know it was an internally incubated startup, uh, it kind of gave me uh, a negative image of, of what I could learn from. So uh, from that, I kind of feel like having a startup inside a huge company is, is a really big challenge. Um, and knowing that made it easier to transition into my own external startup, which had limited resources and limited team. But I knew that out of that, we could create something great because that's how great startups are born. Um, I also looked at the culture at Google, which was a very engineering driven culture. Google is famous for its technical abilities and its uh, engineering experience. And through the types of decisions they'd made during Google Wave, I saw that engineering kind of led the boat. Um, and that's something that I didn't want my next company to do. Um, we focused really hard on making engineering, design, product and business equal partners in, in, in steering the boat and, and uh, guiding the vision of Canva. Um, and I think that's worked really well even up to today where everyone on the team has input into where the product's going, the decisions we make, um, and they all have an equal stake in the success of the company. Um, so there's no one thing leading or making all the decisions and, and making it feel like design is a second-class citizen or engineering is a second-class citizen. Uh, everyone's pulling together onto the same team. That's, that's probably one of the key things I learned from my time at Google that we've transferred into Canva. Sure. Well, um, let's take a quick break from our sponsor and then uh, I've, I've got a specific question I want to ask you. Sure. Okay, so Cameron, before we went to the sponsor break there, I said I had a question I wanted to ask. And, um, you know, as as the tech world only gets more influential globally and, and especially the SaaS side of, of the business and th um, things like this, uh, there's constant talk about acquiring and retaining um, customers, users, members, whatever whatever the nomenclature people are using. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of people talking out of opinion, maybe instead of experience sometimes. Yeah. Um, in your opinion, if you had advice for, for anybody in the space, regardless of their product, what, what are kind of a couple of the most important things to you when it comes to acquisition and retention? I think probably there's, there's two areas I'd focus on. There's the very emotional um, journey that you take your users on, which is all about creating loyalty and trust. 
and then there's the more data-driven side of things, which is often associated with uh, acquisition and retention. Um, so on the data-driven side of things, you know, we use a lot of data pulled from a bunch of different sources, whether that's surveys, on-site metrics, customer feedback, social media, uh, you know, even blog posts or, or um, SEO. Uh, and you can, use, you can use all that data coming in, seeing how people are arriving at your site, seeing what they do, what their first step taken, how to increase their engagement with what they're doing, et cetera. Um, and that's, that's obviously a really important part of product development. And it's something we get our product managers to focus on quite a lot and to kind of live in the data and understand the kind of data stories behind people's experience with the product. Uh, but I think on the emotional side is something that people don't take account of um, as much. And I think it's still very important. And we, I think a good example of this is, is we have this thing called the Canva Love Stream. Uh, so if you go to canva.love, it'll take you to a curated Twitter feed that we have. And it's all the users basically telling Canva how much they love it. Um, and it gets quite personal sometimes. I think we've had about 45 wedding proposals to Canva. Um, we've had people who, who just constantly tell us, you know, Canva gets them out of a bind, that they, they had this problem, they had an assignment due the next day, or they had to get this pitch together. Uh, and Canva allowed them to make something amazing. And I think it's that kind of visceral, emotional reaction to your product that you want to create in your customers. Um, and the way that we've done that is by, you know, creating a real personality to Canva, being friendly, approachable, interacting with our customers in whatever medium they're on, whether that's filing a ticket with our support platform or talking to us on social media or, the, the types of emails that we sent out, even through to the product copy that we have and the illustrations that we use uh, and the experience that we ultimately give them in the product. We work really hard to make our experiences in the product magical and seamless uh, and for want of a better word, delightful. And we get lots of people commenting on that. So, uh, you know, we have while you're exporting your design, it takes a little while. So we thought, oh, we might chuck in some inspirational quotes in there. So we, we put in some inspirational quotes related to design. And we get so many tweets about that of people screenshotting that and saying, wow, I really love these little, little bits of my day where I get to export something and see these quotes. Or uh, one of our engineers one day decided to put in our upload indicator so every like 100th upload you did, a little rubber duck would float by on the upload indicator. Um, and we get so many people screenshotting that and getting so excited when they see the little rubber duck float by. And there's all these little moments in the product that we've built in that engage our users, um, make them feel like they're working with something special and give them that magical experience. And I think that creates that great emotional connection and loyalty, which ultimately leads to great retention and great word of mouth, which leads to great acquisition as well. Why do you think that there's so many of us that um, maybe don't spend as much time on that as we could and that there's maybe a, an overemphasis in product capabilities and specs instead of uh, really putting in the time for that emotional connection that creates the kind of results you guys have gotten? I think it is a lot easier to look at the data and draw... Uh, inferences from that and and plan out a roadmap based on that and it becomes a really easy equation of like 
we pull this lever, we get more of this, so let's just keep doing that. And you kind of optimize those funnels. Um, and it's, it is, yeah, it's, it's almost like a very robotic mechanical way of looking at it. And you need to have that machine running within your company. Um, but creating the emotional connection and, you know, for want of a better word, the brand becomes a bit more soft and squishy and experimental. And it, it, it is a bit scary because there's often no signal that you can look at that will go, you should be doing this. Uh, it's something that you just have to try and think creatively and come up with interesting things and, and understand your user base enough that you can engage with them on that level. Um, and you just have to try out a bunch of things. And they often take time. They take a little while to build. Uh, the effort that you put in might pay off. So th there is a bit of a risk there. But I think taking that risk is extremely important and will ultimately lead to you creating a much more holistic company that has a really passionate and engaged user base. And I think if you look at, if you look at every company that has that kind of rabid fandom, behind it is the extra attention and care that they've put into their product and their communications that have made people that way. Um, and I think it's really easy to draw that connection. Yeah, I love it. Well, listen, you, you get interviewed all the time. You're the press tracking you down. You get asked sorts of questions. What, what's something that you would want to talk about that maybe you don't get asked all the time? Ah, oh, interesting. Um, I have no idea. Uh, maybe what I would talk about. I don't know. You've stumped me there. Okay. I got plenty. I got plenty of questions. If you think of something, interrupt me and we'll switch. <laughs> you can fire away. Yeah. We'll switch to your subject. Um, you know, I think about some of the really successful founders and CEOs and, and entrepreneurs we've had on the show before. And a lot of times I feel like a number of them have a real passion for a certain principle. Um, you know, we had the, the guy from zoom, uh, the CEO from zoom. Are you familiar with that? Um, video conferencing company. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And he, he talked about how he built, you know, 140,000 users with no advertising through just relentless customer service. And he's emailing them after they leave when somebody wants to quit and like having like personal one-on-ones with users who want to quit using the service and just, you know, yeah. kind of maniacal about it. Right. And, and just like, he lived it so hard, it really worked for them and infused their culture. And, and we have, um, you know, different founders, again, from all sorts of industries that, that have a different kind of soapbox. Hey, this is my soapbox and it really works for them. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you have a soapbox? I think, uh, I gave a talk at our last seasonal all hands. So every quarter we, we get the whole company together and everyone gives presentations on where they're at and where they're going on their particular teams. Um, this season, I gave a presentation on happy customers. Um, and the notion of happy customers was that the entire success of Canberra is based on, on making people happy. And this entails a bunch of things, but I believe it's, it's kind of built upon a pyramid. And at the very base of that pyramid are the kind of essential foundational things that you need to do. So you need to make sure that customers can get their job done, that the servers are always up, that they can save their data, that they can rely on you. Um, and it's a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy, if you're familiar with that, where 
you know, the very basic human needs are at the bottom, such as shelter and getting food and, um, uh, you know, being able to survive in the world. And gradually, as you move up the pyramid, you become more fulfilled. And at each level, it entails a different need that needs to be fulfilled. Um, so the very top of Maslow's hierarchy is, uh, what is it? It's self-actualization. Um, self, self and that's like people being able to, um, you know, understand that they're adding value to the world and, and creating something that they, they truly believe in. Uh, and below that, you have things like belonging um, and even things like ego, like you feeling good about the things that you're doing. And I believe it's the same in making a happy customer where you have the foundational things that just keep the lights on. But as you move further up the pyramid, you're, you're helping your customers uh, achieve something out in the real world, not just clicking on a few buttons on the screen. So that's about, uh, you know, if they're a business owner, making their business successful and making their, their customers see them as their heroes. Uh, if they're a nonprofit, it means they're, you know, helping the, the, the homeless that they're working with or the orphans that they're trying to find homes for. Um, if they're a school teacher, it's about engaging their class, making their students um, happier and learning more. Um, and you need to build up that experience pyramid. And that involves the things that I was talking about of, of creating a delightful experience, creating something that's magical and thinking about the broader picture of what people want to do and how they want to do that. Um, and that's something I kind of really pushed home with our, our teams this season because we just came off the back of a really big project that involved about 60 or 70 of our engineers. Um, and that they've now spun out back into their own small teams of, of, of about six to eight people. And each of those teams needs to think about who their customers are, how they can make them happy, and all the big and little things that they need to do in order to make that happen. Um, so that's, that's probably the thing I'm most passionate about at the moment. I love it. Well, um, we appreciate all the time you spent with us today. Um, I would encourage everybody to go to canva.com. If you haven't tried it out before, you can sign up quickly with your Google or Facebook. Uh, we've, we've been a fan at Mylan and at our charity child rescue. We've used Canva for, for a number of years now. Um, and, uh, thanks so much for making time to be on the show. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Bye. At farmer's insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.